<sighs> Why are the lights all off? Damn it, I thought I turned these... Shit. Oh my god! James? Ja James? Why are you standing in the corner? James, turn around and face me! I replaced all my maps with reclaimed wood that say peace, love, and wine. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. My wife and I combined our Facebook accounts. Oh, shit. In marriage, you don't each give 50%. You each have to give 100%. Don't come any closer! My bachelor energy can withstand anything! James, being married doesn't mean you have to be a robot! I enjoy being the little spoon. Jesus, do you hear what's coming out of your mouth? Uh, the... the two fleshes have become one! Shut up! I need you back, man! I don't need guy friends! I live with my only friend! Jesus Christ, James! Snap out of it! The Doppler effect... I... New Zealand! Norway! People from Norway! Aaron! That's right, James! Aaron, it's all coming back to me! It's... It's... It's not we in marriage. It's we talk about dead people! That's right, buddy! <laughs> ah! oh, oh! And next to her is Saint Margaret the Virgin, who was eaten by Satan the dragon and then busted her way out with a crucifix. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? True story! That can't be real! Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and newly married co-host, James D. Say hi, James. But first, we dance. Nope. <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events of these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? Uh, we have Sergei Rachmaninoff. Is that right? <laughs> Close enough? Yeah. All right. <laughs> and Joan of Arc. Okay, it's Sergei Rachmaninoff. Sergei Rachmaninoff. Yes. Rachmaninoff. <laughs> this episode's gonna Rachmaninoff. <laughs> I hope so. Well, it's good to have you back, James. It's good to be back. Shall, Shall we honeymoon we down, down, down to the, to the history lab? <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Woman, a world of adventure. Sergei Rachmaninoff, one of the greatest composers in human history, and Joan of Arc, the other greatest composer in human history of lies. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, James, mm -hmm. tell me, mm. if you had 
to make a cookie, what kind of cookie would you make? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would make a cookie purely out of raisins. Because that's everyone's kind of favorite. We all love the, the oatmeal raisin cookies, but simply because of the raisins. We don't really like the oatmeal part. And no one likes chocolate chips. So I would just make plain oatmeal cookies. Wait, you said nobody likes the oatmeal. Yeah, yeah. And so, you just or, said I'm you sorry. would make plain oatmeal cookies. I'm so out of my league, man. Ah, uh, ah, <laughs> uh, just raisins, just raisins okay. in the oven. I'm just thinking of like, I'm thinking of like a, 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 are you okay? Jesus. Yeah, I'm just out of practice. I was just thinking of like a, like a, like a, a disc of smashed raisins and it kind of looks like a McDonald's hamburger patty. Yeah, that's what it is. You can put okay. it on buns. You can put it between your buns, whatever you want to do. <laughs> It's your life. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about your cookie? Cookie? <laughs> uh, I would make a cookie composed entirely of... Well, not entirely of, but, but mostly of... Uh, the face of... Oh, dear. Benito Mussolini. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Okay, well, that's, that's uh, and controversial. And you wouldn't eat the cookie. The cookie would eat you. Oh, oh, dear. Okay, It wow. would just open its mouth and you fall in, and before you know it, you're in Italy. But okay. not the Italy you know and love. <laughs> A different boot. <laughs> A different boot. Uh, yep. Well, that's interesting. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I see some business opportunities. Uh, uh, yes. Speaking of... Should we should we have the computer bring up some some stuff? I, I've never oh, I've yeah. never said that. You have to yeah. Oh that's right. I forgot. <clears throat> We're so out of practice. Uh computer, please bring up Sergei Rachmaninoff and Joan of Arc. Affirmative, my lord. <laughs> if I had a dollar every time I said that. Alright. <laughs> so <laughs> So tell me, Aaron, what is Sergei Rachmaninoff best known for? Sergei Rachmaninoff is best known as being one of the most popular Russian composers of all time. That sounds really boring. Yeah, what did he look like? <laughs> he looks like a bundle of fun. Fierce, dark features, he's clean-shaven with very short hair. Being a Russian, he has naturally pale skin and eyebrows fresh and ready for a jolly good time. Oh In the other pictures I found of him, he looks far less dramatic. His boyhood images make him look a bit like that ginger kid who would steal your Cheetos at lunch and absorb them like a garden slug to maintain maximum power. Yeah, been there. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> and Great. what is Joan of Arc best known for? Joan of Arc is best known for inventing the Ark that Noah sank in. Yeah, he sank. Oh. It all, yeah. Mm. She's also best known for being the maiden and saint who attempted to save France during the 100 Years' War. Ah. Mm -hmm. You'll have to explain mm -hmm. all of that to me. I will. I will. Yeah. So, I according will. to the tapestries, the latest tapestries, what did she look like? The latest tapestries uh, do show, and other accounts say as well, that she was very beautiful, young, and also almost wearing plate armor or men's clothing. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, which is important. We'll get into that later. Yeehaw! Yeah. So, what do you say we move right into Sergei Rachmaninoff's early life? 
Yeah, I mean, we've wasted enough time of our listeners' lives, so let's do it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> first of all, <clears throat> Rachmaninoff, a lot of people don't know who he is. I didn't know who he was, but I knew his music. Mmm. Okay. And the reason I like it is because it's actually fun to listen to. It's can we really play good. it on the show? Yes, we can. Yes! Yes, we can. Because we're talking about it in an educational capacity, we can play his music on the show! Oh, yeah. So, <clears throat> the, I had no interest in reading about this guy until my brother actually pointed out that he had a pretty interesting story. So, okay. <clears throat> here we go. So, Sergei Vasilyevich Rachmaninoff was born in the April of 1873 in Staroruski County. <laughs> oh. oh. Staroruski. He's oh, a rusky star. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that's where the heroes of the Soviet Union go. They're yeah. Star-O-Rusky. <laughs> I'd also name a raccoon Star-O-Rusky. I don't know. Uh, like I would totally name, name a raccoon Star-O-Rusky. Yeah. Come on, little Star-O-Rusky. Let's get out of the garbage. Oh, I was I was standing in a parking lot last night for no reason at all. And I looked uh -huh. over and there was this little raccoon staring at me out of a dumpster. Hmm. And our eyes met, and his little eyes gleamed, and then he just, like, turned around and started tearing into a bag of Fritos. <laughs> Are you True sure story. that wasn't Dick Cheney? It might have been Dick Cheney. <laughs> okay, well, just making sure. Okay. So anyway, Starnarusky County was of the Novgorod government, which, mm. what does that mean? Well, I don't know. this... It means that Rachmaninoff was a man of Eastern Europe, a mm. part of Eastern Europe that has a different name today. And you know exactly why. Of course, the Doppler effect. That's right. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Rocky wasn't just some peasant born in the countryside of Russia. No, sir. He was born into the Russian aristocracy. Nice. In 1873, which is no. pretty bad timing. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I, I mean, if you're going to... If you're going to be born into the aristocracy, you might want to make sure you live and die before the time of the Russian Revolution. I mean, am I wrong? No. No. Okay. So right off the bat, two points penalty against Rachmaninoff <laughs> for that dreadful performance. Yeah, seriously. Anyway, so his family is aristocratic. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, I don't know. there's a there's a lot of military shit going down and a lot of art shit going down because mm. that's what you do when you're in the aristocracy. <laughs> Sounds great. You join the military and you play an instrument. So mm. <laughs> Rocky's dad, Vasily Arkadyevich, I'm probably pronouncing that horribly, but I really don't care. Oh, uh, wasn't he yeah, so he was an <laughs> it's Spanish. It's definitely he's the Spanish lord. Anyway, so Vasily was an officer in the army and a pianist. Mm. Uh, so military and music. There you go. Yeah. Rocky's mom was the daughter of a famous and very rich general in the army, and she plays the piano too. Wow. Okay. So military, piano, lots of money, aristocracy. That's where we are. <laughs> That's a recipe for goodness. Mm. So he was raised on a family estate called Oneg. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. And started taking piano lessons when he was four! <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. I mean, which is fine. Teach your kids to do cool shit. Not sure I yeah. could tie my fucking shoelaces when I was four, but I certainly couldn't play the piano. No. No. Now, no, <clears throat> Rocky... <laughs> say what? Uh, you were no, say something. I, I, I couldn't play anything when I was four. Is that it's it? Just not even keep a joke. going. <laughs> it's just the truth. Yep. You couldn't even play with other children. Nope. 
Now, <clears throat> Rachmaninoff, or Rocky, as we'll call mm. him, as a baby, can play entire pieces from memory without missing a note. <laughs> okay, great. He's like four. And he <laughs> this can... show is so depressing. <laughs> Wait, why? Because <laughs> well, we, we compare our... Well... We inadvertently compare ourselves to these amazing people. It's just so... Never mind. Just keep on going. I'm, All right. I'm dirt. <laughs> so, I am dirt. Yeah. All right. You're fine, man. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's really good at the piano, and his mother catches on. Uh, and she decides that this probably warrants encouragement. So she hires a live-in piano teacher. A live-in piano teacher. <laughs> named wow. Anna Ornatskia. Uh, hmm. I think that's how it is. And lessons start going well, and Rachmaninoff makes lots of progress. Sure. Um, Rachmaninoff is actually a family nickname, which in Old Russian means lazy. Now here's the thing. While Rocky's old dad oh. may be good in the field and at the keys... Oh, oh shit, again. I fucked up that line. Oh shit, I'm getting a call. It's, uh, it's a fake call. I'm alone in the void. Sorry, you there? I'm alone. Shit, you there? So alone. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? So some fucker from Indiana was calling me, and it wasn't Josh. Oh. Oh. You know what? Here's a message. Okay. Here's a message for Josh from Indiana. Brother, yeah. get these companies to stop spam calling me. Mm. I know you're the yep. king of Indiana. You can make it happen. I've been getting calls daily, like a couple of them a day, from like various companies with the 317 area code. I don't know why. And... They're all like, well, you know, your credit card is about to get you in trouble. Give us your number. I'm like, fuck off, you know? Anyway. But, you I mean, you, you really do need to cut down your spending. That's true, I do. That's true, yeah. 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 Uh, I lost you at the family nickname. Ah, yes. So, Rachmaninoff is actually a family nickname, mm -hmm. uh, which in Old Russian means lazy. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Now, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. While Rocky's old dad may be good on the field and at the keys, he sucks at finance. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, yeah, he's known for being a particularly habitual gambler and <laughs> not exactly loyal to his wife either. Oh, geez. Okay, wow. So, yeah, not everything is so great in the arist aristocratic wonderland mm. that is uh, Oneg or whatever. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> This all reminds me of the beginning of Anna Karenina, but that's another story, literally. So, mm. because of Rocky's, Poppy's bad behavior, did you write that? No, you did. It feels like you wrote that. No, you are as worse as me. <laughs> <laughs> you are as worse as me. You are. It's true. <laughs> all right. So, uh, let's take another run at that one. <laughs> so, so, because of Rocky's poppy's bad behavior, when Rachmaninoff was about nine, his dad fucks up with his money so bad that he had to sell four of the five family estates. Okay, well, <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to feel about that. <laughs> They're no longer aristocrats. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. He just gambled They're just crats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just crats. Uh -huh. Um... <laughs> So, uh, the family was eventually forced into a tiny apartment in St. Petersburg. Oh. So, hmm. from high places to low places, mm -hmm. which is kind of kind of sad. The story anyway, of Russia. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> so, in 1883, Rachmaninoff gets sent into the St. Petersburg uh, Conservatory, mm -hmm. which is a music school or something like that. But sure. anyway, he's studying music there, so it, for all intents and purposes, it's a music school. Okay. Is that right? A conservatory is just for music? I really don't know. 
I don't know, it sounds like some Republican bullshit to me, so who knows? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the same year, <clears throat> the same year he was put into the conservatory, the family suffered the loss of one of Rocky's younger sisters. Oh. And then old dad went out for cigarettes and never came back. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just fucked off to Moscow. Um, just like, I don't need you fuckers. Jeez. So grandma moves in to help take care of the kids, which is good. Um, and she brings with her her religion. Okay. Uh, which is, of course, Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, and this is actually a pretty influential thing. And Rocky starts going to church with Gam Gam on the reg and picks up some musical themes native to the Russian Orthodoxy experience, which he uses later in his pieces. Oh, okay. Nice. Yes. So in 1885, when Rocky was 12, he lost another sister to illness. Oh, God. Yeah, he'd been close with her, uh, and her name was Yelena. And she had introduced him to the wonder of Tchaikovsky. Ooh, okay, I know um, that name. Yeah, exactly. Tchaikovsky was like Rachmaninoff's idol. Mm -hmm. Loved this guy and his music and everything. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> losing his sister, um, who introduced him to Tchaikovsky, was a huge blow for him, oh. to say the least. Yeah. And his grandma saw him down in the dumps and said, Hey, buddy, let's head down to the Volkov River and chill out. Oh, if I had a dollar every time someone told me that, too. Yep, so yeah. they do, where Rachmaninoff learns that he really fucking loves rowboats. What? <laughs> it, I don't know. All it's, right. It's in, it's in the data. Fair is fair. <laughs> After this, however, Rocky had still lost a good deal of his motivation. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where he started falsifying his report cards while simultaneously failing all of his classes in the conservatory. Oh, wow. However, he was still performing his piano magic. Hmm. But even that was now in danger because he was fucking up everything else with getting bad grades. Yeah. So his mom, seeing that her son's talent might be squandered to basic-ass laziness, sends Rocky... And that's what they thought of it as because Rachmaninoff. Right, Anyway, so she's, yeah. she sends Rocky to the Moscow Conservatory to study with a stricter teacher. Hmm. And by study with, I mean live with. Ooh, okay. Hmm. Because... That's just how it worked. Either That's they how live you with do. You or you live with them if you're serious about music. Sure. Yeah. So this goes on until Rocky turns 15, at which point he wins a scholarship and all the prestige that comes with that. Hmm. And then he starts dipping in a little bit more to music composition, hmm. which displeases his instructor because, hey, you're a pianist, you know? Um, sure. His instructor, who is named Zverev, Zverev, mm -hmm. um, believed that composition was a silly distraction, okay. oddly enough. Huh. And that's simply because he thought that talented pianists like Rocky ought to spend more time performing other pieces and whatnot instead of making their own. Huh. Which sounds fair if you're dealing with just a talented pianist. Sure. I mean, um, it's, it's probably a more, it's an easier way to, to make income rather than to well, risk it, creating new art. Right, well, it's like, okay, so just because you play guitar for a great band doesn't mean you should be the one writing the songs. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. And you can you can just hear it, like, I, you know, I'm really good at the piano. I'm going to start writing my own music. It's like, oh, God, Rachmaninoff, come on. Everybody says that, and they suck. Just stick with what you're good at. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but Rocky won't budge on this point. He's like, I'm going to make my own fucking music, dude. But mm -hmm. Zverev is not okay with that, so he kicks him out of his house, just like that. Oh, wow. Okay, jeez. <laughs> So, Rocky starts giving piano, les piano lessons uh, and makes 15 rubles a month, which is below the average worker's wage back in the day. Hmm. Um, so, he can't really afford to live on his own. So, he lives with his aunt and uncle in hmm. Moscow. And what's this? Out of nowhere, he composes his piano concerto number one. 
Wow. Which sounds like this. Oh, yes. Now, if you can mark this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now I know you won't actually listen to it, being the uncultured and intellectually undernourished baboon that you are, James, but sure. damn, mm -hmm. it's an incredible piece. Yeah, sounds course, like it. I'm yeah, totally have... listening to it right now. <laughs> I have no idea how to exactly gauge the quality of this music, though, because I, too, am an intellectually undernourished baboon, but it certainly sounds nice. Well, if there's no electric guitar, it's not music. That's my uh, rule of thumb. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and if there isn't a, a, several stanzas where you just sing, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. it's not a good song. Yeah, yeah. And if the and if it's not about Christ, then don't even waste your time. Yeah, just what what the hell's wrong with you? Stop it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so <clears throat> Rachmaninoff actually started doing better as a student uh, and passes all of his piano tests at the conservatory with honors. Nice. That's the gist of it, anyway. And then he gets sick with fucking malaria in the summer, oh. which just sounds terrible. Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh, those Russian man. summers are brutal. Yeah, drink your liquids, buddy. That's just oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then for his final class at the conservatory, he writes an opera based on a poem called "The Gypsies." Hmm. Uh, he writes this opera called "Aleko," "Aleko," or something like that. And he writes this opera, an entire opera, in 17 days! Jeez, <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. So, when it premiered, Rocky believed it was completely doomed to fail, probably because he did it in 17 days. Right. And to make matters worse, guess who was there? His dad. No. Zverev, the man who gave up on Rocky. Oh. And also, Zverev is on the judging committee. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's like high school musical or some yeah, shit. Yeah. So oh, the, the lights dim and the music begins. And Rocky, knowing that this is essentially a make or break moment in his career, sits in the dark in utter agony through the whole thing. Oh, jeez. But by the end, the audience and the judges are in complete awe. Hmm. The premiere goes over so well that fucking Tchaikovsky, who was there, what? <laughs> comes up and congratulates him. Whoa. Uh, Whoa. This is like the end of October Sky when Homer Hickam meets that Nazi fuck. What was his name? Hitler? No. Werner <laughs> von Braun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he wins the Great Gold Medal, which was the highest award available at the oh, conservatory, wow. for this opera. Um, and as the crowd applauds and Sergei Rachmaninoff looks around, you know, teary-eyed and realizing that his work is actually a, a success, none other than Zverev himself steps out of the cheering crowd, shakes his hand, and gives him a gold watch. Wow. Even oh. Zverev knew he'd been wrong about Sergei Rachmaninoff. Jeez. Yeah. And then on graduation, he goes from earning 15 rubles a month to 500 rubles. Wow. Um, securing a publishing contract, huh. uh, which is an absolute windfall for the young artist. That's like the best you can ask for as a music composer back then. The, this needs to be a movie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and this is only the early life. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. But it's only the beginning of his career, and when we come back to his adult life, we'll hear how the story continues. I gotta say, I was not looking forward to this. I thought it was gonna be boring, but I am no. I'm so invested in this, dude. You're gonna love it. It okay. gets even better. Excellent. I'm ready, Teddy. Alright, so what do you say we move into Joan of Arc's early life? Let's do it! Okay. And 
unfortunately, Joan of Arc doesn't really have a character arc. <laughs> she just does things. Just kill Is me. That just all? kill me, please. Just kill me. I can't reach you through the phone, but believe me, I would if I could. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So, Joan of Arc's early life. Here we go. Righto. So we've got this 100 years war thing, right? Right. You've heard of it? Yeah. So the war began in 1337, and this war rages for over a century between England and France. All becomes all because some baker once put raisins in cookies and claimed them to be chocolate chips. The worst crime. Oh, wait. Are you serious? Well, yes, but uh, there are some conspiracy theorists out there that believe the real reason the war began was because of some inheritance dispute over the French throne. But wait, wait, okay, that sounds legit. That doesn't sound like the conspiracy theory. The I know. raisin in the cookies sounds like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> no, no, oh my god. The raisins are in you... the cookies was something I made up. <laughs> oh. It's a war over the inheritance. Okay, hold up, though. <laughs> hold up. Hold up. Okay, All right. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard of the, the War of the Bucket? Oh, yes, there have been wars over stupider things than that. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, if you can get into a war over a bucket, yeah, you know, you, and you say, oh, a guy put a raisin in a cookie instead of a chocolate chip, I'm going to be like, okay, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's 1337, all right, we fight over stupid shit. I mean, there was a war in South America over bird shit, okay? They were literally fighting for bird shit because it had phosphorus in it or something. Yeah, like damn. people, people fight over the stupidest things. Okay. I hope this podcast starts a war. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so well down. on the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, so back to the 100 Years War, which is about the inheritance of the throne. Blah blah blah. Mm. Things are not going well for France. Uh, they're getting their their asses kicked. Uh, really, really badly, actually. Uh, which is just a, a regular day in the life of normal medieval history. So, I was going to say. Yeah. So here are some things that are going wrong for France. To begin, the Black Death just happened. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> and France's population... Yeah, yeah. And France's population hasn't even fully recovered yet from that. So they don't even have all their people back. Uh, and it's hard to fight a war when you don't have people. Next, nearly all of the fighting is happening in France rather than in England, and the English are being real dicks about it and using scorched earth tactics to just utterly ruin thousands of acres of French farmland and villages. Good. Further, France <laughs> isn't even France at all! It's three oh. separate kingdoms! You have the kingdoms of France, or you have the kingdom of France, which controls central and southern modern-day France. But then you have England, which controls most of northern France along the English Channel, as well as portions on the west coast of France. And then you have this douchey duchy of Burgundy in eastern France and Belgium, which is kind of the wild card of the whole situation. Uh, so sometimes Burgundy fights alongside France, sometimes alongside the English. Like I said, they are a douchey duchy. Which is Nobody likes going... a moderate. No. <laughs> but hang on! It only gets worse for France! Good! Yeah. And guess who else is out there trying to ruin France? Uh... Our podcast! What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So set down your popsicle and listen to this. Alright. King Charles VI is king of France right now. That's right! Yeah, the same Charles VI we covered just a few weeks ago. <laughs> right! So, 
yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode, just know that the guy was insane. Um, anything you want to say, Aaron? <laughs> uh... No? <laughs> it's awful! <laughs> yeah, like, there's a party He's and so everybody crazy. catches on fire. I mean, he believed he was made out of glass. He, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Needless to say, he's not the kind of leader that France needs right now. <laughs> I should think not. <laughs> um, and yeah, so to, because the king is crazy, many of his family members try to step up to save the situation. But this leads to all sorts of quarrels, and then the king's cousin kills the king's brother, and it's just a shit show. <sighs> and now there are all sorts of different factions in France, all trying to take control of the throne. And the English choose this point in time to launch a full-fledged campaign. So it's the year 1415, and the English meet the French at this little battlefield that, oh, I don't know, is like the most famous battle in all of medieval history! It's the freaking Battle of Agincourt! And if you don't know what happens at Agincourt, well, lots of mud, and lots of arrows, and basically the French forces just get annihilated! <laughs> So it's just, it goes from bad to worse for France. Every day. Every day. So, yeah, every day. Sorry, France. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so, then the, so then these Burgundian duchy douches, remember them? Oh, yeah. Well, How can yeah. I forget the Burgundian duchy douches? <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, what am I most... Never mind. <laughs> Never <What>? mind. <laughs> Uh, one of my most used internet searches for pictures. Anyway, so this, <laughs> th they, these Burgundians, they just go ahead and capture Paris from the French. <laughs> so now the French don't even have Paris. Uh, thankfully, they do have a new king. The new king is Charles the Seventh after the Charles the Sixth. Oh, oh, oh! That makes sense because mm -hmm. Charles the Sixth was before Charles the. Aha! Yeah. So the I French understand <laughs> royal politics. <laughs> Yeah, the French do have some things in their favor, namely they understand numbers. <laughs> anyway, so Charles VII, he, he wisely conducts a peace with the Burgundian douchey douches, or duchy douches, uh, but this peace abruptly ends when his own forces just go ahead and assassinate the douchey duke of Burgundy on a bridge. So okay. not even his old Was it a soldiers. cool assassination at least, or was it just like a guy ran out of a crowd with a knife? Um, it, 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 I didn't really look into it, but there's a, there's an old painting of it that looks pretty cool. Um, it's on a bridge, which always makes things better. Did we he, should... like, go hurtling over the side, screaming? I don't know, so I'm going oh. to say yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah, he did the Wilhelm scream and everything. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> was dashed to pieces upon the river rocks. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the new douchey Duke of Burgundy, the new guy, he says, fuck you guys, and he allies with the English, and this new English-Burgundian alliance just steamrolls over a ton of French territories. So, this is the place where we're at. France's economy is shit, its leadership is shit, France doesn't control most of France, the Burgundians and English are seemingly unstoppable at this point. Paris is occupied. Oh, and now it's 1428, and the English are laying siege to the important French city of Orleans. Orleans? <laughs> that or can't Orleans. be how you pronounce it. <laughs> I think it. I think in France, I, I was told it's Orleans, and then in <laughs> in America, it's Orleans because New Orleans. 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 You know, know, it's it's sad that the French are losing to. 
people like the English and another people that are named after a color. <laughs> uh, what? Burgundy! Oh! <laughs> I was like, white people? Burgundy's a color! <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like an episode of Sesame Street, except much bloodier. <laughs> and instead, you know, <laughs> I don't know. All of history is like Sesame Street to some degree. You've even got this the number sequence. <laughs> Charles the Sixth! Ho ho ho! Assassinate the Seventh! Ho ho ho! Six wow. Charles. We ah, should make. Ah, yeah. Ah. <laughs> no, it's gotta be the French laugh. Ho ho ho! <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Too good. So. The English are uh -huh. laying siege to this French city of Orleans, which is how I'm going to pronounce it. That's um, fine. Okay. This city is really important because it's basically the last defendable city protecting the rest of French territory to the south of it. Are you chasing a tornado, sir? No. Why? Oh, it sounded like you were. I'm not doing anything. Okay, good. <laughs> anyway, if, if the city of Orleans falls, probably all of France will fall. That's important. It's important that Orleans fall so France never exists. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Fair enough. <laughs> you're, right. you're trying really hard to get me on the side of the French. It's not going to happen. Oh, well, okay. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But I'll get you someday. Uh, all right. Uh, I look forward to that day. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> now, before we move on with the fate of Orleans, let's back up a few years to cover our girl, Joan of Arc. Or Jean of Arc. Um, I almost forgot this episode was about her. <laughs> yeah, me too. No, no. It, it, the, the context is very important, as all historians know. You have to understand the context. Theologians, right. too. If you... yep. Anyway. <laughs> everyone, everyone, uh, understand the context. And understand mm. your contacts if you're nearsighted. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's been Jane. too long! <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So Joan of Arc was probably born around the year 1412 to a French family living in eastern France, who, despite living in France in the 1400s, actually had a little bit of farming land, and the father was kind of a low-ranking local official. So they're not well-to-do, but they're not rolling around in their own shit crying about life like <laughs> most of the European populace at this time. Can you say Kulak? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's dark and not historically accurate at this no, time. No, no, I'm talking about her family. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving Kulak. forward. Kulak. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. I'm on another level. <laughs> we are. <laughs> you are. So, right. moving forward. Joan of Arc. It's about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. Right. At the age of 13, Joan was gardening in her father's garden when BAM! Kazam! Zammy! Joseph Smith! Close! It's close. Okay? okay. So lo, right. and, lo and behold, three beautiful humans appeared and approached her. And holy France, look who it is! It's freaking Saint Michael, the archangel himself, the oh. guardian of Israel, and the leader of the heavenly legions! Oh! oh. Oh, and next to him is Saint Catherine of Alexandria, the famous saint and virgin who converted thousands of people to Christianity, and then was martyred by pagans. Uh 
Oh, and next to her is Saint Margaret the Virgin, who was eaten by Satan the dragon and then busted her way out with a crucifix. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? True story. That can't be real. It happened. It happened. <laughs> Satan busted out with a crucifix. Yeah, it's like some Dark Souls boss. I don't know. You'd think Satan would chew. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, chew your shit, Satan. <laughs> anyway, these three figures approached Joan of Arc and commanded her to save France. Then they laughed Why? and she cried because they were so beautiful. <laughs> I've cried because of beauty before, haven't you? Yeah, I've seen... I've I've seen Bugs Life, okay? I cried. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm I'm laughing at the memories. Okay, true. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> so Joan of Arc wastes no time in saving France. Actually, she does. She oh. waits three years. <laughs> Slacker. Yep. But three years later now uh, that she's 16, it's finally time to save France! Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh-huh. What did she do for three years? Just, like, sit around and go, those angels said I should save France. Well, I don't know. She was 13 when it happened. I just dropped my wedding ring. What the? Well, I'll find that later. <laughs> but for now, I'm single. <laughs> Ready to mingle. <laughs> for Pringles. Yeah. So, so she is 16, and, uh, and I lost my place on our not script. Oh, yes. Uh, so it's time to save France! <laughs> so she goes to a local French town and commands that the commander there escort her to the French king. And he refuses. <laughs> like, obviously, she's just some peasant girl. Mm-hmm. So she goes to two of his soldiers and told them that they, that they have to help her save France! I don't know how they're gonna do that if they don't drop their baguettes for, like, two fucking minutes. They're armed with baguettes, aren't what? they? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Baguettes with white flags attached to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, we're saving France. Yeah, so the soldiers, they agree to help her. So they, uh, they organize a second meeting with the commander. And at this meeting, Joan says, I'm going to have to do this in a French accent, aren't I? I don't know if you can do one. Have you ever tried? I can, but not a female French accent, because that's just offensive on so many levels. Fuck it. Just hey, it. buddy, in a few days we're going to receive word <laughs> that the French beat the English in a little battle outside of Orleans. Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah, that was good. All right. Very okay, good. so she she makes a prophecy. That That's the, the point of it. She, she, she makes a prophecy that the French are going to beat the English. All right. And uh, this commander's like, yeah, right. But guess what happens? A few days later, a messenger arrives saying the events went just as Joan predicted. So now they're all convinced that she's blessed by God, and now that she, and that she's the one who's gonna save France. <laughs> but of course, right, it's, it's it's getting fucking irritating. <laughs> oh well, I put it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, don't stop on my account. <laughs> yeah. So of course, saving France has to start with saving the town of Orleans, which is still under siege by the English. So off they go. Joan and her escort to find King Charles VII, gather an army, and go to SAVE FRANCE! <laughs> it's 
so obnoxious. You got that? All right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So she's with some lads, and they're going to find the French king to save France. And there's a lot of madness going around France at this time, isn't there? <laughs> what? Currently? Or just no. any time in history? <laughs> no, at this time in history, you had Charles VI and his crazy freaking show, and then yeah. you had Joan of Arc and yeah. Visions, and people are like, you know what? <laughs> They're so used to it at this point. They're like, alright, she's probably not lying. <laughs> oh, well, that's exactly what happens. We'll get to that. They're, okay. all, they're all like, well, every logical way of going forward has failed, so we might as well throw all of our military strength and trust be behind a 16-year-old farm girl. Pretty and desperate. Works. <laughs> we'll get to that. I guess that's probably why it makes such a great story. But yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to go into Sergei Rachmaninoff's adult life? Yes. And hear more about his rise to fame? I do, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he, he is on the up and up. Yeah, so <clears throat> when we left him, he was something like a rising star, mm. um, having finished his classes and earning his, and having earned his degree, uh, and also that lucrative publishing contract we talked about. Oh, yeah. It seems that Rocky is off to a good start. Mm -hmm. It's 1892, and the story is just beginning. <laughs> and immediately we run into some problems. <laughs> First off, this contract sounds great and all, because it's good money, right? But yeah. there's a problem with a contract when the guy who's paying you isn't paying you. <laughs> oh, yes. That is a problem. Yeah. So he's not paying uh, Rachmaninoff for this composing contract or whatever. And, you know, he's still doing his shit, but he's like, hey, I need to be paid. And the guy's, like, not answering his phone and, like, yeah. you know, you'll see he'll, like, he'll read red on the text messages, but he won't ever actually write back. That kind oh, of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So his in the mean, hmm. go ahead. His Steam icon just always shows away, or, yeah. like, in-game, yeah. <laughs> Playing Fortnite. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Those Russians. Yep. Anyway, so, in the meantime, <clears throat> the promising young composer, Rocky, is running short on cash. Mm. So he starts doing what Zverev recommended and does piano performances to make ends meet. Yeah, it makes sense. I including one at the Moscow Electrical Exhibition in the September of 1892. I don't know what that is, but okay. It was basically like the World's Fair, but earlier. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, so of course he's playing his own music. He's not mm -hmm. like going up there and playing other people's shit. He's playing his shit because you know. Yeah. Aleko was really, really successful. So there you go. Hmm. Um, so the piece he selected for his performative debut post graduation uh, was from the Morceau de Fantasie. And it was in French because the aristocracy spoke French back then because they thought it sounded nicer than Russian. Well, and the the French had a lot of... They, they helped uh, Russia, modern Russia, get started in a lot of ways. That's correct. That's yep. correct. <clears throat> I was just simplifying it for our stupid listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure, yes. <laughs> what? Actually, I, I simplified it for myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because I didn't want to get into the complicated shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so he's playing the Morceau de Fantasie mm. and was paid 50 rubles for it. And nice. of course, it was a huge success because it's fucking Rachmaninoff. Right. And from then on, he just goes on an absolute composing spree. But then he gets the news that his friend and childhood idol, the great Tchaikovsky, has died from cholera. Oh. Yeah. And he kind of slows down a bit and composes a tribute for his departed friend over the course of a solid month. Yeah. But afterward, it's just, it's just, he's just not the same. Mm. Uh, he loses interest in composition and 
and uh, his opera Alico is basically canceled because he's losing his limelight fast because oh, he's not geez. doing anything. Yeah. And he goes back to teaching piano lessons for a while for about two years. Hmm. Um, he gets one opportunity to go on tour and make some money, but about halfway through, he just gives up. Oh, jeez. Yeah, because he's this so... Is... He's... Go ahead. Well, it seems like a lot... He's really hit by these deaths of, of close members. And I, I mean, everyone is. But his sister died earlier, and that hit him really hard. Now it's his mentor. Yeah, I don't know. That's just... That's tough. Yeah. Well, and his sister, you know, was the one who introduced him to Tchaikovsky, and Tchaikovsky just died. Right. There's probably a little bit of grief connection there. Well, <laughs> and when, when both people were so connected to his professional career, it would be hard mm. to keep on going with that career and not be constantly reminded, oh, my beloved sister is dead oh my mentor is dead yeah that just oh that sucks <clears throat> yeah so he's he's got he's getting really depressed that's the that's the point here mm -hmm. so about halfway through this last tour like i said he gives up and just goes home and mm. he almost immediately runs out of money uh and in desperation he staggers into a pawn shop and sets a gold watch on the counter for sale oh no the same gold watch Verev had given him at the premiere of aleko oh so, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Sergei Rachmaninoff is really depressed. Yeah. Yeah. And he continues composing, though, but, like, less and less. Um, mm. He makes some money, and then he gets robbed of it. Mm. So, like, it feels like he's make he can't make any progress. Like, yeah. he got the money for this com composition, and now it's just gone. Oh. So he has to, like, do everything he can to make up the losses and all that good stuff, so. Oh, God. So you remember Symphony Number no. One, which I played earlier and you didn't hear? Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Piano. That was Piano Concerto Number no. One. Mm. This is different. This is Symphony Number no. One. So he. Mm -hmm. This is his new composition, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, he decides he's going to premiere this new symphony. Um, yeah. And he does, and he just gets blasted. I mean, oh. one critic, some jackass named Caesar Cui or something like that. Cesar, I don't know. Um, yeah. He said the piece was basically as bad as the Ten Plagues of Egypt. <laughs> and like he also... Podcast. Yeah, exactly. He also said it's the kind of music you might hear in hell. Jeez! Oh, <laughs> now, wow. there are some theories as to why this is, because if you listen to Symphony Number no. 1, it's really fucking good. Mm -hmm. um, here's the problem. The symphony's conductor was an alcoholic and might have been super <laughs> drunk during the performance. <laughs> ah, yeah, that would hmm, that would hurt things. It's just up there slurring and now the violins, <laughs> and they're like, He's, "What? <laughs> what the fuck?" He's <laughs> playing along. Like, <laughs> He's waving that little <laughs> director's stick around. Nearly takes off a violin player's head. <laughs> He, like, ducks into his shirt like a turtle in a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his hat's just floating there for a second. <laughs> just spinning. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, nonetheless, this was not a great start for the Maestro Symphony Number no. 1. No. Uh, of course, Rachmaninoff was upset the reception was not great, but the thing that disturbed him most was that even he didn't like it when he saw it performed. Ooh. And he never had Symphony Number no. One performed ever again in his lifetime. Oh, jeez, yeah, yeah. Like it was, it was such a bad debut that he was like, "We can't unfuck this thing, so just forget it." Right. Um, so for three years, Rachmaninoff again falls off the map and just sort of goes back into hermit mode, teaching piano lessons. Mm. 
Um, his depression seemed completely unending, and he described himself as being something like a paraplegic stroke victim. Oh. Like, he said, my hands and my head will not work the <laughs> way that I, at all. They just won't do anything. Oh, I'm God. paralyzed. So, yeah, he's just kind of scraping by, and at, at a certain point, he's offered a job as an assistant conductor at the Moscow Private Russian Opera Company. Hmm. Um, being virtually penniless, he couldn't say no. Mm-hmm. So he started conducting, he took the job, and while it wasn't what what you'd think he'd want to be doing, uh, it seemed to give him a little bit of momentum. Sure. Yeah, because it was something, like he well, got something. Yeah, we've both been there. To get out of depression, oftentimes you just have to do things, stop mm-hmm. lying around, teaching yeah, piano I, lessons, because that's what I did when I was depressed, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. I just played video games and smoked. <laughs> You and me both, buddy. Yep. <laughs> and the podcast that's from <laughs> great things can sometimes be spawned from the deepest pits of depression. I mean, I would say the podcast certainly helps both of us uh, not well, die. Yeah, I mean, maybe you got out, but this podcast just pounded me in like a little nail. <laughs> well, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> The show must go on. All right, fair enough, fair enough. But anyway, so he's getting a little momentum as a conductor, uh, and he gets positive reviews. People are like, oh, yes, the maestro did very well, and all Mm. that shit. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems like things are turning around for Rocky. Yeah. And then he actually gets engaged to a girl that he loved and and got along with super well. They were almost like family. In fact, they were family. Oh, no. (laughs) It was his first cousin, Natalia Satina. Well... Yeah. Sure. All right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But he really did love her. Okay, um, well, that's good. For, and for obvious reasons, however, the parents are not about it. They're like, hey, yo, you can't marry your cousin. Come on. <laughs> like, sure. This, this ain't gonna happen. And also, they can't legally get married within the Russian Orthodox Church, which forbids, or forbade, mm. I don't know if it still does, probably, but it forbade marriage between cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, this one girl who is the light of his life cousin or not, like, she's out of the picture, right? Hmm. And guess what? What? His depression worsens. So the little momentum he had is gone again. Yeah. And then his aunt steps in, and this woman's a fucking saint. She says, hey, look. I should probably do a Russian accent, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, I I know this guy who might be able to motivate you. Perfect. Spot on. (laughs) Accurate. Yeah. So she sends Rachmaninoff to meet one of his favorite writers uh, to learn about motivation and maybe find some kind of inspiration. Who was that writer? Um, Bill Watterson. Albert Einstein. Oh! Hmm. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. She sends him to meet Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, All right, it's gotta be a Russian. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Rachmaninoff goes to visit Tolstoy. That's knocks, amazing. <laughs> like, at his house, and he's, like, hoping for some encouraging words and, like, you know, hey... I know I write pretty depressing books, but you can make it. (laughs) So Rachmaninoff knocks on the door and Tolstoy opens it up, takes one look at this shambling depression standing before him and says, Jesus, get your life together. (laughs) His visit with Tolstoy did basically nothing. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be great. I know. So at 27 years old, Rachmaninoff is so convinced that he's a failure that he is literally unable to compose at all. Mm. He's just staring at the page, feeling nothing, hearing nothing, and feeling worse and worse with each passing day. You know, it's like, I've been there, I know what that feels like, you're just sinking, right? 
And his aunt, who is a saint, sends him to a therapist. Good. Now, therapy today may be like, hey, you're valuable just as you are, learn to accept yourself, drink some water! But <laughs> therapists in 1900 are more like, let me slip some meth into your drink, hypnotize you until you believe you were abducted by aliens, drop you in a cold bath with a straight jacket on, and shock your dick off with a car battery. That was therapy in the 1900s. It sounds good to me. Anyway, <laughs> Seriously. Well, <clears throat> the good news is, Rachmaninoff's therapist is Robin Williams. Oh! Huh. In another good life. Genie. His name is Nikolai Dahl. Oh, uh-huh. Uh, and he was a less extreme kind of therapist, therapist obviously relative to that era. <laughs> good! <laughs> yeah, so he basically gives Rocky the Jocko Willink treatment, uh, convincing him he has to become a little bit, just a little bit disciplined about his lifestyle, fix his sleep habits, eat healthy food instead of Burger King all the time, mm. and start becoming more constructive rather than destructive with his self-criticism. All good things. And so Nikolai Dahl works uh, with him on this just for months uh, in the winter. And, oh. man, you can just see this. Like, you've got this depressed composer who had, like, so much going for him. Mm -hmm. You know, shook Tchaikovsky's hand, was told he was going to be the next big thing. Yeah. And then he just sinks, and he sinks, and he sinks. And then there's this therapist there, Nikolai, who's like, come on, let's work together on this. So oh. they... Yeah, yeah. dude, think of the potential of this as a movie. St. Petersburg, like the dark streets of St. Petersburg in the winter. You could do so much with the light and darkness. With, oh, and, yeah. Uh, mirroring his depression. I'm down. You need to well, make this. Uh, okay. Claymation. I'll Claymation. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, um, this goes on for a few months, just working really hard at getting better, just and incrementally getting better, better, better and better. Mm -hmm. And spring or finally arrives in Rachmaninoff's life. Mm -hmm. He says he begins to feel the call of the muse once again. There's murmurings of music in his mm. mind. Nice. Uh, and this is the point at which he begins his work on the legendary piano concerto number two, hmm. which is a groundbreaking piece of music, and it's impossible to accurately describe. Sure. But you should listen to it sometime and just put yourself in a Rachmaninoff's narrative as you listen. Oh. It begins darkly, descends into chaos, and slowly but surely ascends. Huh. At about 12 minutes in, I think, 14 minutes or so, um, the second movement begins, and it's an absolute masterpiece. It is exactly what it feels like to break free from depression. It's amazing. Hmm. So if you don't listen to the whole thing, just listen to the second movement. I might just play it on here as we're talking. There's nothing quite like it. You're right. Or we could um, end the show with it. Who knows? Could do that. But anyway, so people loved it. Um... Mm -hmm. And because it was so raw, and it, it really touched an emotional nerve that most music of the era didn't touch. Yeah. Um, so the composition was an immediate hit. And Rachmaninoff then realizes, once he's making money again, that, oh, hey, I can do whatever the fuck I want. So he bypasses the Russian Orthodox Church because, you know, you can't marry your goddamn cousin in the church. It's just not yeah. appropriate. So he and his cousin Natalia run off and get married in an army barracks in Moscow <laughs> and then go on a three-month honeymoon together in Europe. He's just like, fuck the system. We're getting married. You know, I'm out I, of this depression. Yeah, go. I am I'm on board with this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird that it's his cousin, but I'm glad he got out of it. Well, there's prejudice surrounding that, I think, but, you know, I think the point is, like, he got, he got through the depression, he got himself together, and he started going after what he wanted, because he yeah. was, like, free of the chains. It was like, he could see this, this sort of 
beautiful future stretching out ahead of him, and he just is like, fuck it, I'm mm. going. So anyway, <clears throat> they're on a three-month honeymoon together in Europe, which is fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1904, Rocky went to back, back to being a conductor for a while, but quickly lost interest. Um, and here's the thing. Amidst his own personal journey, there's some trouble brewing in Russia. Of course. So he beat depression, and now Russia's getting depressed. <laughs> <laughs> and they're sort of taking the other way out. They're, the, the Russian Revolution uh, is beginning. Mm. Uh, in 1905. And it hmm. seems it wasn't just the average worker who wanted more rights and all. And it turns out that a lot of musicians uh, were getting sucked up into the hyper-political atmosphere, organizing protests and refusing to perform and all that irritating shit. Interesting. And, and irritating is the right word. I mean, that's not me. That's not my opinion. Uh, it, irritating is the right word because Rachmaninoff just couldn't seem to figure out why anyone would care about rights when there was music to compose, damn it! <laughs> and this is sure. a thing. This, this just keeps coming up. Um, yeah. It ends up irritating him to the point where he just quits his job and leaves Russia with his wife and daughter. Probably a good move. Yeah. So then they get sick and have to go home. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and get this, okay? It turns out that things are only getting worse in Russia. What? <laughs> and Rachmaninoff just gets fucking tired of the <sighs> politics. Um, and I wrote a joke here that I'm not going to read, uh-huh. but basically there's sort of a last straw and he says he's going to move out of the country for good. Huh. Um, and you know, uh, he actually does it. Okay, good. Which is pretty different from everybody who's like, I'm going to move out of the country if such <laughs> right. and such happens. He's like, fuck it. I gotta, I gotta work. I can't do this with all you people tooting your horns and shooting your kulaks. So <laughs> he actually moves out of Russia. Uh-huh. And obviously it's it's all bullshit, but he's had enough of it. And it wasn't like, and it wasn't even like he was saying, yo, this communism thing ain't cool. He was like, fucking shut up. I'm trying to compose music. <laughs> I'm going to use that next time I see a protester of any type. <laughs> so he takes his family to Dresden, which is in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, in 1906, where, guess what? Hmm. 
People are composing their music and not worrying about politics. Yeah, until World War II hits. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, but at the time, it was like the last safe place that was at least marginally close to home where mm. you could just go and like not think about politics. It was because, yeah. I mean, you know, Dresden, it's a city of the arts. It's, you know, absolutely fucking beautiful. Dresden? Or was. Yeah. Yeah, until World War II. That's, that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. In Dresden, he composes Symphony Number no. 2, a follow-up to Symphony Number no. 1. Mm. Uh, obviously, because 1... Two. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, they can count two! Yeah! Isn't it amazing? Cross-cultural similarities! They can count! Wow, it's like, again, Sesame Street. It's so beautiful. Sesame Street is the word of law in this unfair and dark universe. Mm -hmm. Anyway. (laughs) So, he's just, at this point, he's traveling all over the world to perform and conduct symphonies and all that Mm. good stuff. And he's just a grand success. And several years go by where he's just doing this and being successful and having a good life and everything. But in 1910, he finally goes back to Russia. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> where he's made president of the Imperial Russian Music Society. I'm sorry, hmm. vice president of the Imperial Russian Music Society. Yeah. Um, but two years later, he quit this job when he found out that an employee, that an employee at the Imperial Russian Musical Society had been fired for being Jewish. Oh, God. So he's like, hey, guys, that ain't cool. Fuck you, I'm out. So that's... All right, I'm on board with that. I keep liking him a little bit more and more every time. So Yeah, me too. So from 1910 to 1914... 1914. Rachmaninoff continues to compose well-received pieces. But of course, you know what time it is. It's Uh, 1914. You know. You know what time it is. Yes, that's right, Charlie Sheen. It's time for the February Revolution. (laughs) (laughs) And guess what? Hmm. Rachmaninoff's first act of business during the February Revolution was to give a recital for the wounded Russian soldiers coming back from the front lines of the Great War. That's amazing! This I know! Great. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, hey guys, I know you're hurting, but, you know, I'm here to play for you, and uh, I hope you feel better, and this music speaks to your soul. So, oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey now, uh, you're an all-star! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the revolution keeps coming, and it don't stop coming. Eternal revolution. Yes. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, so anyway, after this concert, Rocky goes back to his estate and finds it occupied by a bunch of fucking hippies. <laughs> that's a that's a simplification, but um, they were, these were people who were like on board with Marxism, and they're like, oh yeah, no ownership, no private property. We're just gonna move in. So they weren't. They weren't exactly communists. They were sort of like armchair communists. Like, hey, we'll take it when it's in our advantage, right? Like, sure. Let's just go steal, Rock- go live in Rachmaninoff's house for a while. <laughs> so his estate has basically turned into a chaotic monkey house with no goddamn rules except you don't own that. <laughs> oh no. Um, even though Rocky put most of his lifetime earnings into the development of the property, oh, that's these people are like, yeah, you know, so uh, no property. So, mm. anyway, he lasts about three weeks there, living amongst them. <laughs> That's impressive. And he, yeah, and then he packs his shit and vows to never return. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and the hippies, you know, they're they're fine with it. They continue to live their property-free, uh, their property-free lifestyle on somebody else's property and then sure. the communist authorities come in and say hey actually there's no private property but that's ours now uh, as they do so the, so the communists take over the estate kick <laughs> out the hippies 
and then just leave it there to rot. <laughs> they don't even use it for anything. Oh, it's too perfect. I know. That's a microcosm if I ever saw one. Yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> Rachmaninoff's last concert in Russia was performed in Yalta. Hmm. And after this, he went back to Moscow with his family and kept composing. But God damn it, the commies were making so much noise, shooting and pillaging outside of his building that he couldn't even focus. Oh, jeez. Um, so he joins this, ironically enough, little community collective meant to protect the area from the radicals outside. Hmm. And he took on, like, a part-time role of regularly patrolling the streets at night. Man, this sound, it's it begins so tribal, or it becomes so tribal... So fast. Yeah, it really does. And yeah, I guess he was lucky his aristocracy was sort of stolen out from under him. Uh, right. Because he would be target numero uno if his dad hadn't fucked up with all the money and everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, his family was basically locked in the apartment building to stay safe from the turmoil outside. Hmm. And they're trying to figure out how to get out of the country, and they finally get an, an, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Rachmaninoff gets an invitation to perform in Scandinavia, which he immediately took as the opportunity he needed to get the fuck yes. out of Russia. <laughs> yeah. So they get on the train, and then they get on an open sledge, and then they get on another train, and they go get out of the country and go all the way to Helsinki, hmm. only carrying what they could fit in their suitcases. Jeez. Mm, and on arrival, Rachmaninoff was in debt because of the whole fleeing your home country and losing your private estate thing. Mm -hmm. So he starts performing a lot in order to make money to support his family. Yeah. Um, but he knew it was time to get as far away from Russia as possible. Because, yeah. remember, they're not just talking about, like, let's revolutionize and, you know, turn Russia into a communist state. They're saying, let's turn the whole world into a communist state! Especially so, Finland! <laughs> yeah, so they're like, let's get out of here. Uh -huh. um, so they get the help of several friends and benefactors and people who just loved them and extended their generosity to pay for the travel costs, um, and they were eventually let loose in New York City. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So on arrival, Rocky realized how quickly how famous he was, hmm. uh, because the hotel he was staying in had actual crowds hanging around outside looking to catch a brief a brief glimpse of their music. Oh wow. Huh. Yeah, I know. You just think oh, he's a classical composer, but he had fans around the world. Huh. Yeah. But, of course, he still didn't know English, and he had no connections in the States. Oh. So he had to hire an interpreter and an agent and ended up going on performance tours. And perform he did, working his way up to the upper middle class of American society. Wow. Yeah. And he used his newfound modicum of wealth to hire Russian immigrants to work in his household. Uh, mm. People who were fleeing. Um, good, good for him. Basically... Gave them a place to stay and a job. Yeah. And he created his, he modeled his house and his family dynamic and everything after these classical old Russian traditions, right? Mm -hmm. um, like they prayed at meals and they were, you know, they organized, they recognized religious holidays and gave people days off and that sort of thing. They probably like, spoke in Russian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, They're speaking yeah. Russian. It's like, it was like a little, you know, it was like a little little shelter, a last bastion, I guess. Mm -hmm. While, you know, his home country of Russia was just sort of in turmoil and eating itself from the inside out with the ideology of the future, right? Mm -hmm. um, Rocky had created a little shrine to the better sides of the old world of the Russian Empire in his house. Mm. And this is significant for a lot of reasons, which we'll, we'll get to later. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> this went on for a while and, you know, several years. In 1920, Rocky signed a recording contract with the Victor Talking Machine Company, better known as RCA. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he used his wealth to support friends, families, and even his old students who were still trapped in Russia. Hmm. Uh, 
Um, he was sending them much needed food and cash shipments to help them just to help them just stay the fuck alive. Yeah. Um, because you know, and he probably... hasn't seen them in what sixteen years at this point, probably. Uh, or did well, he, go... he was he was in and out of Russia uh, okay. for a while. Okay, um, that makes more sense. But there were a lot of them, you know, he just, he didn't know where the fuck they were because many of them were in the aristocracy and, you know, you know what happens to those people? Disneyland. Yep. So, <laughs> um, it, I, it wasn't all good times for Sergei, though. Um, after leaving Russia, he said he felt he'd lost a bit of his spirit. Hmm. Here's a quote. I left behind my desire to compose. Losing my country, I lost myself also. Oh, it's so sad. I know. So he's like fucking displaced, which is... Oh, really not fun. Mm-mm. Anyway, so throughout the 20s, Rachmaninoff performed and made new friends in the States. Into the 30s, it seemed as though things leveled out for him. In 1934, he composed another beautiful piece called Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, uh, which is, again, another amazing piece and also one of my personal favorites. Mm. Um, in 1931, Rachmaninoff openly criticized the cultural destruction occurring in the Soviet Union. He was like, mm. hey... Art can be in service of other things other than the state. And, of course, the Soviets just kind of threw a tantrum and, like, pushed out all kinds of hit pieces on him and, you know, went to the press and boycotted his music and you know how this shit goes. And it went on for two years. Um, And and here's the part where it gets complicated, though, because Rachmaninoff would later donate many of his concerts' um, proceeds to the Red Army during World War II. All right. Because while he didn't like the Soviets, he still liked Russia and didn't want to see Nazi Germany completely annihilate his homeland. Well, that makes sense to me. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. He loves his I mean, country. The, and they were our allies, uh, and he's living in the States, so that makes sense. That's right. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and he knows that they don't have the cash that they need. <laughs> so. Right. Anyway, so things went on, in, on as usual with touring and everything, but at a certain point, Rachmaninoff's health began to fail him. He's well into his 60s at this point, so that's where we'll leave him, and when we mm-hmm. come back, we'll see what happened to him at the end. Well, great movie. That's what I'm yeah. saying. This was a great movie. Yeah. Man, we're this is going to be a long episode. Shit, sorry. That's fine. You, I forgive you. Okay, thank you. You were absolved. Mm-hmm. You have my forgiveness. Forgiveness. <laughs> So maybe you tell us a little bit about Joan of Arc's adult life, or do you want to take a break? I will tell you after this break. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes I brush my teeth with fruit bats. What? How dare you? Those fruit bats have families. (laughs) Can I sing you a song? Yes. SpongeBob is God. There's nothing you can say that will convince me otherwise. There you go. Wow. That's... Oh, man. Hold on. I need to get my my earbuds. I'll be right back. There's... Yeah, that is... That's good. That made me cry. His porous yellow skin is filled with holes like the pearly gates of heaven. He lives in a pineapple under the sea. And that is the way the apocalypse will be. I was just singing the second verse to our listeners. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. What? Blessed be the name, the name of, of the Lord. Lord. 
Must it be your spongy name? Sorry. Who lives under the sea? <laughs> a pineapple is his home. <laughs> He's got a starfish friend. And a squid who hates his bones. It's the Krabby Patty. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's we made were... of mystery meat. <laughs> We're basically a Karmanov or whatever his name is. <laughs> and we're back! Yep, boo! To Joan of Arcs. Adult <laughs> life. What? Nothing. You just sit on a thumbtack? No. I can't. I can't I'm emceeing. <laughs> what? What? No, I don't know. Come on. Okay. When we last left Joan of Arcs. <laughs> When we last left Joan of Arc, she was on her way to save France. <laughs> so irritating. All right, I'll stop. I'll no, stop. No, don't stop. Don't stop. stop. You, you've stop. started I'm, this I'm now. I'm lying to you, like I always do. All right. So she and her escort head to Chinon on, in 1429, where they meet with King Charles VII of France and the royal French court. And these guys are just miserable, as you can imagine. Of course. In their minds, every attempt to save their beloved country has failed. The English and Burgundians are just too strong. Orleans is gonna fall, and this is the end, pretty much. Right. But then Joan arrives. She's 17 years old, but already has a following, as many of the soldiers and knights in her escort had just fallen in love with her leadership. Hmm. So she talks with the king himself and wins him over. Now here's the thing, James, alright? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Joan of Arc. Yeah. Perfect movie material. Yes. Hollywood. Can't get it fucking right! <laughs> I haven't- I haven't seen any of the Joan of Arc movies. They all suck! Really? Yeah. I don't know how you fuck up a scene like this. Like, there's these kings or whatever sitting in these courts and it's like all dark. Seriously. And, and they're like, oh god, we're gonna lose everything. And then the door opens up and this girl walks in and they're like, who the fuck is this? And then you can just see, she says, I am Joan of Arc. And then behind her, these people assemble in the light and the kings mm. just look up and they're like, we may have one last chance after all. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could see that being awesome. That, that is awesome. Cool. Yeah. Oh, anyway. and it could be a sing-along, too. Yeah! And then, and then she could say, I am no man, and stab the Witch King in the face, who's actually the King of England. Okay. Uh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So, so she talks to the king and wins him over. Yeah, and when, when she's talking with the king, she learns that a, a, re a relief force is being organized by the king's mother-in-law, uh... To go and save the city of Orleans. Decent. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why the king hasn't done it, but who knows? He's so, busy sharpening his baguette. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's not even funny. <laughs> All right. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna take a sip of coffee. Carry on. Take it. Take it. So Joan, uh, she learns about this relief force, and she asks to be put in charge of the army. And the uh, the king in the French court agrees to this, which is just insane. She uh, must have been hella persuasive. I think. So. Like, I, 
yeah. her persuasion skill is maxed out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like yeah. if you walked into Whiterun or whatever the hell it is in Skyrim and convinced the Jarl, hey, give me your army. And he was like, why should I? And like, there's a little persuade in brackets and then the line <laughs> yeah. is, because I said so. And then it works. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, there, it's pretty much that. There are a few other things which we'll get into in, in a minute. But the point is, is they're handing over the last chance of hope to a 17-year-old peasant girl who has absolutely no military experience or, or probably knowledge of military affairs at all. So, a, a couple reasons besides just the French. It, number one, there was actually a very convenient prophecy circling through France at this time that a young French maiden would save France. Ah. Convenient. That um, is interesting. But this prophecy wasn't, like, made by Joan's supporters. It actually probably did exist before she showed up on the scene. So, kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, and number two, the French had tried pretty much everything else to save their country, and everything had failed. Uh, so why the hell shouldn't they let her lead? Yeah, well, and also, like, that's a pretty good mascot. Sure. Oh, absolutely, which we'll yeah. get to. Yeah. Um, so, so Joan is put in charge of this relief force, and she immediately pronounces that the war against England is a religious war. <laughs> Uh-oh, now it's serious. Yeah, so this makes King Charles really uneasy, because if this is a holy war, then somebody is on the wrong side of God, and holy shit, what if Joan is a demon? That is a good question. Because okay. here's the other thing, is England and France are both Catholic nations, so it's oh. not as easy as saying, like, oh, we're fighting the Muslims, and they're not Christians, so it's a holy war. No, it's, it's okay, one of the sides is basically on Satan's side. Yeah, it uh, has to be, right? And it might be us, because Joan of Arc is a woman. I don't know. It's they, He gets really uneasy, and it, it makes sense. So, he commands, a, the, the king this is, the king of France, he commands a full religious background check on Joan to find out, like, is she actually a maiden, or is she the whore of Babylon? Well, are you, are you being... No. Not not actually. That was a bit of an exaggeration. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> basically, <laughs> you said like it seriously. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't actually. I, I don't know. Maybe he did, but he wants to make sure that she's on the good side of the religious war. Uh, so he sends some priests, and they did the the background check, and they basically came back to him and said, "We don't have any reason to believe that she's evil, but you might want to wait to see whether or not she actually saves or leans before you throw all of your support behind her." So, good pretty call. good. Yeah, good advice. Meanwhile, Joan reached and entered the city of Orleans, where the besieged populace welcomed her as the maid who would save them, and maybe even save France! You know, I didn't tell you, but you missed one. Did I? Oh, fuck. You did. Top of the page. Save France! Alright, now the universe is balanced as all I have paid my debt and balanced the budget! Ha <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So she's in, she's in Orleans, uh, and she, she meets with the commander, or she tries to, the commander of Orleans, but he doesn't want to have any of this, and he excludes her from all of the war councils. This okay. doesn't stop her from being at them, though. She just busts her way in. Uh, <laughs> and she's also present at all the skirmishes and battles during the siege also. So there's these little fights going on. Huh. Uh, and she, she's there. All the time. And I just think of it, like, probably a lot of these commanders weren't willing to fight in these little skirmishes, because uh, it's too risky. 
But here's Joan of Arc fighting in these risky skirmishes. That's going to get a lot of people listening. Yeah, I think yeah. it would be at least uh, like, oh, holy balls, what is this person doing here? Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, and she's an icon of her her own at that time. I mean, it's like a, a king or a, or a ruler or leader or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. they have other responsibilities to think about. If they get killed on the front lines, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. she's like this self-made mascot almost. And if she's fighting on the front lines, well, that's really where she belongs, right? Yeah. Mm. And uh, she, she was always on the front lines. She didn't actually fight, per se, uh, but she was there, in the front lines, in full armor, waving the banner of France. And she she could have fought, but she said that she preferred the banner to her sword. Uh, just because that's that's what worked. That's what got the soldiers of France to fight, is seeing this... It must have been like seeing like an angel in the middle of a battlefield, where you it's bet. just... It's just horrific. These are medieval battles. And then she's there, in armor, waving the flag of France. That's... It's no surprise that the soldiers just totally fall in love with her, and soon enough, uh, most of the commanders here were won over by her, and the besieged French soldiers decide to go on the offensive to break out of the siege. Man. Which is, it's very risky. They had tried this once before, and it failed horribly. So, it's super risky to (laughs) fight your way out of a siege. Yeah, no shit. Mm Mm-hmm. So next, there's this complicated battle or series of battles in which the French charge out of the city to push back the English, but basically here are the important parts. Uh, Joan of Arc leads the charge with her banner. And in one epic part of the fighting, the French and English soldiers were pouring into the siege trench that the English had dug around the city. Again, perfect uh, movie material. Um, They're just pouring into this, this trench and Joan just leaps into this horrific scene banner flying in the air just in the middle of this this medieval trench warfare well damn yeah and it it doesn't go well an english archer spots her and lets loose an arrow that hits her right in between her neck and shoulder oh and she collapses uh her troops carry her back to safety uh and they're beaten back a bit but after she's quickly treated she returns to lead the final french assault against the english This assault was successful, and the English army was forced to retreat, breaking the siege, saving Orleans, and in all likelihood, SAVING FRANCE! (laughs) Alright, good for Joan of Arc. Yeah. Uh, and well, now that Joan of Arc has saved Orleans, she becomes like the shit in France. Nice. Everybody loves her, the people love her, the soldiers love her, French theologians and clergy announce that she is truly sent from God to save them, oh, and my. King Charles VII places his trust in her. So, pretty big stuff. She's also usually called the Maid of New Orleans. Uh, uh, not of New Orleans. <laughs> the Maid of Orleans. <laughs> if you're the Maid of New Orleans, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> so, good stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, The English, on the other hand, believed that the only way a woman could ever beat their armies was if she was actually possessed by Satan. Well, they're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was a joke. Come on. (laughs) I can hear you sneering at me with that little, okay. (laughs) It's my favorite way to say okay. Uh, Okay. Okay. I wonder, so the why Engle- they, I wonder why they believe that. Whatever. It was, 
it was kind of a mix of actually believing it and propaganda, because in England, this war in France is not very popular. It costs a ton of money. I mean, the Magna Carta is written because of this war in France. Yeah. Uh, even the barons are like, dude, you gotta stop using our money to kill French people. Um, <laughs> so it's not popular. So saying that, like, a, a woman possessed by the devil is fighting us... Eh, I don't know. I can see that going either way, but... I, I can see that being pretty persuasive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like saying you're running against Hillary Clinton. I mean, of <laughs> course that's gonna... Except <laughs> she actually is possessed by the devil. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Need to get George in here to do his Alex Jones impression right now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, there's this... There are these... There's propaganda going around that Joan is possessed. But okay. the French are not buying it. And Joan is, is basically a main part of the French War Council now, with the king and all of the commanders. Uh, and she tells them that they should, lead, or they should let her lead their forces to take back the city of Reims, instead of taking Paris, hmm. which is what the English expected. So the old swaparoo. <laughs> <laughs> And the uh, the French guys agree to let her do that, because now they kind of actually do believe she's sent from God. Yeah. So off they go, with Joan <laughs> leading them. And along the way, they retake several other villages and cities, and Joan is always there on the front lines, waving her banner and inspiring the troops. And this, this could be like one of those montage scenes with a cheesy song in the background. <laughs> You're like intercutting, she's waving the banner and smiling up at the sky, you overlay that on like people getting butchered <laughs> on the front lines. <laughs> It's just this, yeah, yeah, and some, like, cheesy song from the 90s, just, yeah. I will remember you. <laughs> you yep. will remember Joan of Arc. Yeah, I don't know. That's perfect. We have to make these movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, anyway, the, the English aren't happy with this, so they right. send an army uh, to stop Joan, and Joan commands her guys to just go attack it. And what follows is the Battle of Pate in 1429, where the French just crush the English. So good, good news for the French. <laughs> yeah, good for the French. And then Joan and her brave boys just keep going. Nice. Uh, and I should say here that, remember, Joan is basically seen as a living saint at this point, And she kind of lived that part. Ooh. She wouldn't she wouldn't let anybody curse in her presence and was even seen on several occasions slapping knights in the face if they took the Lord's name in vain. See, okay. <clears throat> mhm. Ahem. I like that because and the reason is not because I don't like cursing, obviously. <laughs> but there's this girl, right? Mm -hmm. Amongst all these like men who are like, "Oh god, I just killed like 10 people today and I took an arrow to the knee and all that shit." Right. Oh, uh, you know, fuck. God yeah. damn it. And then this girl comes out of nowhere and like, Psh! Yeah. Don't do that. It's like, oh shit. Like, she might oh, have yeah. something there. Like, well, and that... The... Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say that sort of, in, in, like, institutes some kind of a, a, a stronger moral code, maybe? Enforced by yeah. this girl. I, I don't know. I could see that being really effective. Yeah, I know, but remember that these aren't common foot soldiers. These are knights. These are the, the jocks of the medieval world. 
they don't take shit from anyone, and then, yeah, they swear and she slaps them, and they don't do anything, because this is Joan of Arc. This is, this could be a messenger from God himself. Who knows? True. Or yeah. a schizophrenic. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll that. <laughs> yeah. So she doesn't let anyone curse, and she's also often seen chasing away any prostitutes who are following the army by poking them with her sword. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. So There's a joke I want to make right now that I am not going to make, but there you go. Oh, oh God. It, it's not what you're thinking, I swear. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Should I keep going? All right, I'm going to keep going. And they keep on going, winning back territory and reclaiming several towns, but then a problem arrives. Uh-oh. The army has completely run out of food, and it's not harvesting season, so there are no available crops. Machiavelli would be ashamed. I, I just think of the mountain blade. It's almost harvesting season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. this this 13 next house girls have deserted food as well. <laughs> Right. Here's the best part of the story. Uh, okay. And this is going to be your favorite part of the story. Oh, okay. So, the the army is starving. But in the region the army was in at this time, here lived a wandering friar named Brother Richard. And I love it in, <laughs> And in the months preceding, Brother Richard became convinced that the world was going to end, like, right now. So, oh, okay. So he told all of the locals to plant beans in their fields instead of the normal crops. Why? Because beans ripen earlier than other plants, which would give locals enough food before the coming apocalypse. And it just so oh. happens that Joan and her army arrive while all the other crops are not ripe yet, but here are all these ripe beans thanks to crazy brother Richard! So the French <laughs> army yeah. is saved by the end of the world beans. That is amazing. <laughs> it is good. It is good. Anyway, Joan, uh, Joan continues, and they take the city of Reims on July 16, 1429, and then she and the commanders decide to march on Paris itself. Along the way, they free several other towns without much fighting, but they reach Paris on in September of 1429, and on the 8th of that month, the assault begins! And of course, Joan is there on the front lines, in full plate armor, banner in hand, leading the assault. Wait, 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 wait. What mm -hmm. did they do? What are you, what kind of a dish can you make with beans back then? I don't even know. You're still on the beans, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We're talking about Joan of Arc, and you're thinking do, do about make bean burritos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a day in the life. <laughs> All right, well, let's so think about this. Paris. Well, you could make you could make. I don't know. Bean Just munch on them beans raw. Mm, bean no. donuts. <laughs> Bonuts. <laughs> Back to the siege of Paris. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so the the battle is commencing, and in one of the wall breaches, Joan is spotted by a British soldier or English soldier. What am I saying? An English soldier, and she gets shot in the thigh with a crossbow bolt. Oh, God. Yeah. No. So one of the French commanders there just picks her up and carries her to safety. But the French assault is beaten back, and the attempt to recapture Paris fails. Hold so up, hold up. Uh-huh. Maximum respect for the French commander. He's like, 
oh, yeah. shit, she's down. He runs down there and picks her up. She's wearing full armor. He's like, we'll get you out of here, son. And he just oh, runs yeah. out. Like, that's so badass. It is. Sorry. Well, and this happens in a lot of uh, ancient and medieval battles is a commander will fall. And there will, like, the whole point of the battle will shift to just getting that that person or that person's body to safety. I know when we covered uh, Leonidas, there was, after he died, there was fighting between the Persians and the Greeks over his body. And the body, like, changed hands three times. Damn. So, it's, it's a, these leaders are vital to, yeah. <laughs> to these battles. It's, it's insane. But yeah, that guy was a real bro. Hmm. Yep. So after recovering, Joan, along with the other commanders, they decide to forget Paris for now and instead to take other cities and fortresses in the region. But okay. soon thereafter, King Charles of France enters into a temporary truce with England as both sides badly needed to nurse their wounds from the war. With the fighting done for the moment, Joan didn't have much to do, so she did the thing that we should all do when we're bored. Ah! Send a letter to the Hussites! Oh-ho-ho! And if you don't know who the Hussites are, then I suggest you listen to our episode on John Ziska. Mmm, do it. But if you if you don't want to, basically the Hussites were a, a group of people seen as nationalistic heretics in Bohemia. Okay. And Joan is a good Catholic, so she hates heretics. <laughs> and she sends them a letter that promises to, quote, Remove your madness and foul superstition, taking away either your heresy or your lives. Oh my god, it's like it's like a comment on YouTube. You should just <laughs> kill yourself right now. <laughs> right. You're so fucking dumb. Just kill yourself. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. You, Joan of Arc was the first YouTuber commenter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so she she hates the Hussites so much that she even sends an offer to the English saying that they should put aside their differences so they can go on a crusade against the Hussites. Wow. And the English do not respond. Uh, She's probably, a very religiously convicted person. Yeah, she is, which uh, is important, kind of, to the whole, <laughs> the whole story. She's a very important religious icon then and now, which we'll get to. Okay. Anyway, the English don't want to go on a crusade against the Hussites, probably because they want to fight the French again. And the peace soon ends, and the war in France starts up again. Hurrah! Ugh, okay. Thankfully for Joan, this gives her intent again. It's time for her to save France! <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, in the English and the douchey Burgundian duchy forces are laying siege to the French town of... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Campaign? Something like that. So Joan rallies some of her soldiers together to save this siege. And she arrives and leads the charge uh, against the douchey Burgundian duchy camp. Tongue twister. Yeah. However, this attack quickly turns into a reverse ambush as more Burgundian troops arrive to fight Joan's forces. Joan realized the battle was lost and told her troops to retreat. She stayed back behind with her vanguard in order to cover the retreat of her own soldiers. And as she and her guards were surrounded, though, a Burgundian archer reached up and pulled Joan off of her horse. She was captured, and then she and her forces surrendered to the douchey Burgundian duchy soldiers. Oh, shit. Story over. Mm, it's over. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. The rest was just a... yeah. So Joan was imprisoned in a Burgundian castle in a tower that rose 70 feet or 21 meters. 
She tried several times to escape, including one attempt by leaping from the freaking tower and landing unharmed below. 70 feet? Yeah, she, she landed in the moat. Uh, oh. The moat had dried up, but it was still wet ground, Ooh. so she was fine. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, though, every attempt failed, and eventually the Burgundians traded her over to the English, who were just thrilled to finally have Joan of Arc in captivity. Yeah, I bet they were. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the French forces try several rescue missions, but each time they are beaten back, and things just don't look good for Joan of Arc now that she's in the hands of the English. Because remember, the English think that she's basically possessed by Satan, because how else could a woman beat them in battle? Uh, uh, with a gun. <laughs> yeah, with a machine gun. <laughs> Guns are Satan. Anyway, we'll leave Joan of Arc until we return to her end and death. Well, I want to get there quick, and there's not much about Sergei Rachmaninoff's end and death, so we'll just get through that, and we can go back to Joan of Arc. All right. Excellent. All right, so in 1943, Rachmaninoff died of various illnesses. Oh, God. Okay, that was abrupt. Uh, yep, just before he turned 70. Hmm. His funeral was held in a Russian Orthodox church, and while Rocky had wanted to be buried in Russia, he was instead buried in Valhalla. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is a place in New York. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, goals. <laughs> yeah. In 2015, the Russians decided that they wanted to take Rocky back. Uh-huh. But his descendants were like, nah, you made him leave, so here he'll stay. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. That's all yeah. I got. <laughs> that's, okay. that's the end of his story. Uh, so yeah. listen to his music, I guess. Yeah. Well, we'll play some on the show. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yes. And flip off the Russians when you do. I'm flipping them off right now. Perfect. Fuck you, Putin! <laughs> Alright. Well, so should we Joan head over? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so with Joan of Arc, we've still got a little bit to cover. So she is in English hands, and there's not too much hope for escape at this point. Uh, and the English think she's literally Satan. Right. So that doesn't really help either. No. In fact, in early 1431, at the city of Ruin, the English put Joan on trial for heresy. Thankfully, though, in an act of good faith, the English made this trial as progressive, honest, and fair as possible. Interesting. What does so that actually there was mean? That. Yeah, um, well, I, I just, I don't know, like, unbiased, um, unbiased sources, they let her defend herself, and... Oh, wait! Just kidding! This trial was utter bullshit! <laughs> You had me going there. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so, to begin, right from the start, pretty much everybody knew that this trial wasn't really about heresy at all, but instead a way for the English to get rid of an enemy in an embarrassing way to the French and to her. Further, a bishop was summoned to oversee the case, but according to ecclesiastical law, this bishop had no right to this amount of power. He was too far down the food chain. But, since the bishop was English and it was the English who were funding the trial, the English allowed to him to oversee it. Uh. Also, there wasn't enough evidence in support of Joan being a heretic or a witch to even warrant a church trial. You had to have a certain amount of, of evidence, and they didn't have it. Several clerics were sent to gather incriminating evidence, and they came back empty-handed, which meant that the English lacked enough grounds to initiate the trial. Further, the court again violated church law by not giving Joan a legal advisor. 
But thankfully, at least the whole jury was composed of clerics who were neutral. Oh, just kidding! <laughs> it's stacked with entirely pro-English motherfuckers, which again violated church law at the time. Oh, But my. thankfully, thankfully, there were some clerics in northern France, including the vice inquisitor himself, who objected to this trial right from the beginning. The English, needing these particular men to be present, simply responded, Okay, sounds good to us, but if you don't come, we will kill you. Oh, God. So this whole trial is super ballsy for the English because they're basically taking what should be a church trial that is unbiased and turning turning it into a totally biased political trial. But they Ugly. do it anyway! <laughs> And Joan is brought before the court, and she, of course, notices that pretty much everybody is English. So she politely asks that, that some French clerics be invited to court, and this is promptly denied. Obviously. And then the trial begins. <laughs> and the English council begins by trying to trap her with fancy religious language that a teenage peasant girl probably wouldn't know how to answer. Uh, which is a douche move. So this word... Wordplay goes on for a while, but Joan managed to, manages to escape their snares every time. And apparently we have records of all this banter. Uh, I haven't read it, but it sounds interesting. Uh, the most famous snare that they set for her uh, came when they asked Joan if she was in God's grace. Are you in God's grace? Oh my god. And she responded, if I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. Good, Which is good response. very yeah. smart. Yeah. Uh, basically, if she had said, yes, she is in God's grace, then she would have been charged with heresy. And if she said no, then they would have called that her own confession. Mm. So, yeah. Really unfair. Uh, now for this next part, I am going to give a trigger warning. Um, oh, shit. There is talk about rape. So this gets pretty real. Uh, but it's very important to the trial and to Joan of Arc's story as a whole. So, be forewarned, here we go. Anyway, the trial continues, and later eyewitnesses said that evidence was blatantly changed or left out in order to favor the English story. And there are well, even... Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Duh! <laughs> yeah. There are even different English records that all contradict each other over what happened or what was said, because it's just such a scam. Anyway, this trial took place over several days, and Joan should have been kept in a church prison during this time and guarded by female guards. That was oh, the church no. law at the time. Fuck. But no, she's put in an English prison with male English guards, and some of these guards may have even tried to rape her on more than one occasion. But anyway, the trial continues, but the English, despite having rigged this whole thing, have run into a problem. Uh-oh. If Joan is charged with heresy, heresy is only a capital crime if it is a repeat offense. Oh, no. What but are if, they going to do? How will they save the case? <laughs> they, they basically have to make up a new crime that she did before her heresy <laughs> so that they can kill her. <laughs> That's horrible. And Jeez. they do it. <laughs> oh, God. So the English have to find a big crime, and uh, a big no-no crime in these days was cross-dressing. And guess what? Joan actually often did wear men's clothing. There were tons of eyewitnesses, uh, and she had even been wearing men's trouser trousers when she arrived to the trial, 
And wait, she's even wearing men's clothing now during the trial. The and, uh, horror. <laughs> yeah. And she actually was. Um, uh, well, yeah, she was a soldier. Exactly. So through her campaigning, Joan didn't often wear, say, dresses or traditional medieval women's garb. And there were two main reasons for this. First of all, it's really hard to wear armor or to fight in battle or to ride a horse in a dress. <laughs> yes. Also, you can't wear a dress under plate armor. <laughs> I mean, you can, if, but it'd be kind of itchy. You'd have to have a skirt. You'd have to like, have like a chainmail skirt. <laughs> hey, I would wear one of those. <laughs> ah, me too. Mm. All right. Uh, but secondly, and uh, more importantly, when you're a young fair maiden and you're surrounded by male soldiers at night, on the march, in and after battles, literally always, um, well, the possibility of rape is always a near danger. I mean, this is the medieval times in France. Right. And the male clothing that she wore allowed her to fasten her pants to her belt and shoes more securely, which offered her more protection. Uh, a dress offered her little to no protection here. So obviously Joan had very good reasons to be wearing men's clothing. She explained this all to the clergy and to illustrate that basically this was this was needed. And she even said, hey, look, even while I was here in your prison, a great English lord tried to take me by force. So this shit does happen and I do have reasons to be wearing men's clothing. Huh. Now, to make this whole thing even more of a disaster of a trial, oh, cross-dressing is not necessarily a crime according to Catholic rules at the time. According to medieval Catholicism, cross-dressing should be evaluated on context. And it wasn't like Joan was trying to be a man. Uh, whenever she felt safe, she wore woman's clothing. She was very comfortable being a woman. Uh, so she should have been f let free of this stupid accusation, but no, she's a cross-dresser and a heretic, so take her away! I mean, she's a- she's possessed by demons, you know? Right. Like, the- you can- I mean, you can hear the hysteria, right? You know, it's oh, like- Oh, yeah. And- and you can- you can sort- it's- it's a lot like, uh, Grandier, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm probably fucking that pronunciation up. I still feel weird saying Grandier, but, like- the, the same kind of shit was brought out. It was like this hysterical religious fervor in service of some political motive. Yeah. You know, and that that's like, it's like the same shit. If you can get, if you can get a uh, religious organization on your side and corrupted like that, all you have to do is just say the right words and people are going to get hysterical. Yep. Cross-dresser! Oh my god! Heretic! Oh no! You can well, hear it. Yeah, cross-dresser and heretic are just the trigger phrases of the 1400s. Well, and also, it's like, like th that's they could attribute it like, ah, oh, she must be possessed by a demon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh, it's so messed up. Yeah. So, uh, eventually Joan was condemned to burn at the stake for heresy and for cross-dressing. <laughs> Uh, she was killed on May 30th, 30th, 14th, 31. She was taken to the pole and tied there. And there is one shred of decency in this whole story that I liked. Um, so while she's being tied up to the pole, an English soldier fastened a cross out of two sticks and gave it to her to hold, which she gratefully took. Like, even the English soldiers know this whole thing is bullshit. <laughs> well, there's not much they can do about it. I mean... No. And they're, 
Well, I yeah. mean, I think it's I think it's kind of a it's it's sort of a, a touching moment because he understood that she was real. It's well, I'm not. I'm just reading into this a little bit. But it seems yeah, like, same here. You know, it seems like uh, she was. She was dying because of the war under the guise of being against the church when she clearly was not. Right. And I guess you could read it as kind of like the Roman soldiers giving Jesus a crown of thorns, like, oh, hail, king of the Jews. But mm. I I don't I don't read it that way. I think it's more of a he felt bad for her and like you said, yeah, she was a victim of a, a, a farce. <laughs> I'd like to believe that was why. Yeah, well, we'll go with it. Anyway, Joan of Arc was burned to death at the City of Ruin in France. After the fire went out, the English raked back the coals to reveal her body so that nobody could claim she escaped. Then they burned the body again just for safety. Then they burned it a third time. What? And then they threw the ashes into a river so that no one could, uh, you know, claim relics of Joan of Arc's body. Uh, the executioner later stated that he, quote, greatly feared to be damned for taking part in this. Like, everyone knows it's dirty. It's yeah. it's really disgusting. As Oof. for Joan of Arc's legacy, though, she is a, f- a huge legacy. The, hundred, the 100 Years' War went on for another 22 years or so, but basically she had saved France. Um, and seriously, she probably did give the French armies and leadership the encouragement they needed to keep fighting a losing war. Um, like you said, she was the icon that they needed, uh, at the end of the end of all things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another interesting part is you hear about these, these medieval or ancient trials and how biased they are. And you'll read like, that people do a retrial hundreds of years later. Like, I know we covered a couple of characters where this was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like Elizabeth of Bathory. Yeah. Um, or things like that. But in this case, there was a retrial for Joan of Arc only 20 years later after she died, um, which was soon, really soon after, which struck me because just everybody knew it was such a fake. Mm-hmm. So for this retrial, uh, clerics were brought in from all over Europe to contemplate the evidence. And of course, Joan was acquitted of the accusations put before her and was declared a Christian martyr and innocent of the crimes. In 1920, Joan of Arc was declared a saint by the Catholic Church. And of course, there are statues of her all over France, places named after her, blah, 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 blah. I mean, pretty much everybody knows the name of Joan of Arc. All of France loved her and still loves her. And I gotta say, I'm I'm right there with them. I I really kind of admire her. Um, here's the thing, though, which you've kind of uh, hinted at along yes. along the way. I was wondering is about one interesting piece is throughout all of her life and campaigns, Joan claimed that she had visions and had heard vi- voices of God and other saints giving her advice and stuff. This may have happened, who knows, Uh, but a lot of modern historians tend to agree that Joan probably suffered from such things as epilepsy, migraines, tuberculosis, and probably schizophrenia as well. Hmm. So a lot going on there. Um, Yeah, but you're, you know, you're diagnosing this so far into the past. Exactly. You just don't know. And there are also some, this isn't mainstream at all, but there are some fringe historians who say that she wasn't a Christian, she was part of a pagan cult, or she may not have actually been executed, or she may not have even existed at all. But most people, most historians reject those those claims. 
I was gonna say that seems like uh, yeah, it seems like it's reaching a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, there's a ton more on Joan of Arc. I left a lot out uh, just because there's too much to cover. But go, go, go read about her if you want to. Because I was, I, I just wonder about those visions because we didn't talk about those hardly at all. And I see those trotted out a lot. Um, hey, hold on. It sounds like you're underwater. How about now? No good? Uh, no. How about now? Now you're good. Okay. Uh, okay. I was going to say, it's just, I see that the whole, like, oh, she was insane. She said she heard visions and, or heard people, heard voices and saw visions and shit like that. And I just honestly think that's really beside the point in a lot of times, a lot of ways. Um, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the eye catching part of the story, I think. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of about uh, what you and George talked about last week. And that, mm-hmm. like, it, it comes down to myth in a lot of ways. Like, did this happen this way or did this not happen at all? It doesn't matter because the effect is the same. Yes. Yeah. And that's what matters. And I know we, co- I, we covered this um, when you talked about Peter the Hermit and the First Crusade. And when the Crusaders were... Uh, surrounded in Antioch and all hope was lost, but then they found the holy lance that had pierced Christ. Did they find the actual holy lance? Probably not, but it doesn't matter because they believed they had found it and it gave them the the fervor they needed to break the siege and achieve victory. Right. And it's just so much of history is that way. Well, it It, interests me that the historical revisionists you talked about even wanted to or rather some of them were making a case that she was never a real person. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I get you wanting to deconstruct everything, like a historical narrative that's been held as traditional, just because that's maybe perhaps on your agenda. Um, right. But talking about whether or not she existed is is almost literally irrelevant. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like the whole, like, Jesus may have never existed. It's like, okay, but if... If he didn't, what does that change? Yeah. What does that change? And I, I asked, I've asked atheists that, and then they say like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get into a religious t- conversation here, but ask atheists that like, what, what would it really matter if Jesus didn't exist? And they would, they say, well, the whole religion would fall apart. And I'm, I'm like, no, it wouldn't, because hmm. it hasn't. Like, we don't know. We don't know if he existed or not. Looks like he did, but even yeah. if he didn't. No, the whole religion wouldn't fall apart. So right. it's like, oh, maybe Joan of Arc didn't exist. Well, the story falls apart. No, it fucking doesn't. <laughs> like, right. you, you just, you can't just say maybe they didn't exist or they probably didn't. It's <laughs> yeah. like you know what? For all intents and purposes, they did. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not what you should be arguing about. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and, and it's not gonna like make your case to prove that oh, she didn't exist. Therefore, the story is all bullshit. It's like, right. Nah, man, it just doesn't work that way. I don't yeah, know. yeah, no, I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, hey, this has been a hell of a long episode. Even though I'm like happy that you're back, uh, but I think we need to call it quits. Well, that hurts me, but <laughs> what doesn't hurt me makes me stronger. What? <laughs> let's go up. Let's go upstairs. <laughs>
gonna do for the rest of the day? I'm gonna listen to Joseph Karmamanov's music or whatever his name was. <laughs> Sergei Rachmaninov. That's the dude. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the one. Oh, if you really want to listen to a good one, there's a I think there's a fairly new um, concert that this one girl I can't remember her name. She's amazing on the piano. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, one other thing I forgot to mention about Sergei Rachmaninov. Yeah. He had huge fucking hands. <laughs> okay. They were, like, massive. Um, and they thought he might have had, like, a disorder. Uh, oh, jeez. And when you listen to the music, you're going to be like, yeah, a man with massive hands composed this. Because there's no way <laughs> you could stretch that far without some major effort. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. But anyway. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah. What are you going to do for the rest of the day? Uh, drink coffee and fucking bitch about the Lion King. <laughs> I did do that on a daily basis. <laughs> right, that's why I'm saying it. I can't remember. Did I bitch with George about Lion King? I think you brought it up. I know I I had to have bitched about it a little bit. Yeah. Um. Okay. I and I will continue to bitch <laughs> until I don't see the new Lion King movie. Uh, at which Fair. point at which point i will read the synopsis and be like i was right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay uh, well i think it's time to bring the show to an end for today feel free to send all your hate tweets to wtadp podcast we'll read all of them and not along if you hate us you're probably right if you like us though please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com that's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people 50 bucks 20 bucks 10 million dollars as much as it costs to pay a pianist helps tremendously our cover art was created by the extremely gifted ian patterson ian patterson illustration you can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com with all that being said we'll close out and let the sounds of rock off play you out it's time to rock, man. <laughs> Enough. Ah, <laughs> after being out there composing, dealing with my depression and overcoming my inner demons, it's great to finally come home and relax. Welcome home, my family. Welcome home. Hey, man! Welcome back to your, I mean, our home! What is the meaning of this? Hey, dude, just relax. Chill out. This is a place of love and peace. Fuck the Vietnam War! (laughs) (laughs) Have you listened to the Beatles? There's a man shitting in the corner. Hey, man, that's his right. That is a human being. It's all of our corners. It's all of our shit. There's no private shit here. It's all public. Fuck this. I'm going to America. I'll be waiting for you. (laughs) Jean-Claude. I am very tired of this war. This war. It fills my loins with despair, Luis. And all this rain, I hate oh, it. Oh, the rain. It soaks my baguette. Luis, why is all of our armor and weaponry made of baguettes? Because we are French. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. 
Eiffel Tower, Napoleon. 